I'm Dr. Brian Goldman, host of the CBC podcast, The Dose. Each week, we answer vital health questions that will help you thrive, like, what does my mental health have to do with my gut? How can I prevent melanoma? How much sleep do I really need? And how can I manage my health without a family doctor? I chat with the top experts to bring you the latest evidence in plain language, all in about 20 minutes. Find The Dose on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Coming up on The Cost of Living. I find it so ridiculous. Honestly, it is so hilarious how much they've pushed microtransactions on the game. And it makes absolutely no sense to me. What are microtransactions? It's when you buy virtual stuff in a video game using real money. Rafael Figueroa is sick of it, but not enough to stop playing. Hi, I'm Paul Havertrude. Welcome to The Cost of Living. Cash is king. That's always been true. But now, if you want to win at a video game, you have to pay up. Whatever happened to hard work? Also today, what if I told you there was a magical place where groceries cost less? Milk, cheese, meat... Why some Canadians are crossing the border to get their hands on star-spangled bargains. Up first, everyone agrees we need to lower CO2 emissions. Even the oil industry. No, really, they do. The disagreement is over who should do it and how fast. The World Petroleum Congress, what they like to call the Olympics of oil, just happened in Calgary. Who was there? 5,000 delegates from 100 countries. The biggest of big oil. Mr. Amin Nasser, who's the president and CEO of Saudi Aramco. At the same time, on the other side of the continent, thousands of people marched in the streets of New York for Climate Week. Slightly different vibes. It's like the suits at the conference and the activists at Climate Week live in different worlds. Maybe we can bridge that gap. But the question for all of us is what happens if we don't? Just how big is the Gulf? Well, Amin Nasser is the CEO of Saudi Aramco. It's the world's biggest oil company. Every day, the world burns more than 100 million barrels of oil. And his company pumps a lot of it. So where does he see demand for it going by 2030? I would see around 110 million barrels per day. It is growing. It's not declining. So demand will continue to grow. He sees 110 million barrels a day. Demand going up. But that wasn't the only number at the conference. Canada's energy minister, Jonathan Wilkinson, was also there. And he said oil demand will go down. And by 2050, it could be at 25 million barrels. You want to talk gaps? 
25 million barrels is a long way from 110 million. Peter Terzakian is one of the biggest thinkers in the energy world. He's written books about it, and he's the founder of the ARC Energy Research Institute. He also spoke at the conference. After, I asked him what people inside that room understand that people outside might not. Most people don't understand the scale of our energy world. The infrastructure that's been developed over 150 years. I mean, it's, it's, it's colossal. I mean, do people really understand 100 million barrels a day? That is just a staggering number. Do people really understand 1.2 billion vehicles on the road? And we're adding probably 60, 70 million combustion engines to the fleet every year, even though electric vehicles are coming. Like These are staggering numbers, and there has to be realization is how you let go of the old. He thinks there's a belief out there that an energy transition can happen quickly. And that expectation is actually holding us back from taking steps to fight climate change. That's not the only thing he believes people need to think more about. The hard truth also is that 80% of the emissions are produced when you combust fossil fuels. I would say, I mean, fossil fuels don't emit anything. It's people who buy machines that burn fossil fuels that emit. The decision to turn the ignition key, the decision to buy a new furnace, the decision to equip a new factory with combustion-based technologies, I mean, that is out of the control of the people at this conference, right? And the people in this conference would say, well, fine, I mean, there's a demand for this stuff. It's a vital commodity. If we don't have the commodities that are being demanded, it actually turns into a safety and reliability issue. I asked Alison Cretney about who's responsible for emissions. She's the head of the Energy Futures Lab. Her whole thing is trying to close the gap between the energy world and the environment. When industry is talking about the path to net zero, it's often about the path to net zero production. And there isn't a lot of talk in these rooms about what the full system looks like, what the full picture looks like. So how is that product, oil and gas, then being used in 10 years, in 20 years, in 30 years, at you know, 2050 and beyond? Do the people in this room have any responsibility, do you think, on that side to think more about that? Like the full cycle sort of downstream combustion? I mean, that's what industry will say, right? Hey, we have to worry about the upstream and we're going to cut by this much, but we're only 20% of of emissions. So what are you going to do with the downstream? But that seems to elide a certain amount of of involvement. I mean, ultimately, it's all of our responsibility of being alive on the planet at this time. But I think probably what people want to hear from those in this room and in the industry is that there's uh, awareness of that full view and a, and a willingness and desire to engage in that full picture conversation. She thinks companies are getting serious about lowering emissions, but they want to do it while pumping even more barrels. The industry figures engineering can solve the problem. So it wants to develop technology like carbon capture and storage, hydrogen, But hydrogen is also a 10 years away kind of thing. That's not helping today. And timing is a big deal. Industry is talking about getting to zero emissions by 2050. Climate Week thinks it should happen yesterday. 
Chris Severson Baker says another gap that isn't helping is a lack of trust. He's the executive director of the Pembina Institute. It's an environmental think tank. I really don't expect the oil and gas industry to lead us out of the, the, the problem. Um, I expect them, uh, the oil and gas industry, to, to um, frankly, to try to maintain the status quo as long as possible because it's clearly in their best interest. So from your seat, when you hear like the theme of this conference is pathway to net zero and you hear companies talk about how they're going to get to net zero, do you, I mean, do you think that's sincere? I think, you know, no. I mean, if, if they were sincere about getting to net zero, they would be talking about how we're going to cut emissions in half in the next decade. Uh, yeah, so no, that didn't come up at the conference. If you're not talking about um, interim targets that are, that are significant in terms of emission reductions, then you, you, you really aren't genuine about getting to net zero by 2050. Your commitment to get to net zero by 2050 is really more of a delay uh, kind of tactic. And, and this is, you know, one of the concerns I have is that there's a, quite a number of Canadians and, 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 and people that work for other environmental organizations across the country that are super skeptical about some of the technologies that are being talked about. So carbon capture and storage in particular. And, and I understand where they're coming from because it's always been this sort of uh, framed as this sort of silver bullet type technology that will solve the problem. But... It's, you know, not something we can implement right now. It's something that we will be implementing in the future. And, and, it, and that future never really seems to uh, manifest. So you have the oil industry in one corner, climate week in the other. Is it naive to think they can meet in the middle of the ring, shake hands, maybe hug? Oh, yeah, probably. But Peter Terzakian says we can no longer afford to talk past each other. People need to be in the same rooms talking and really listening. There seems to be a tremendous impatience, and I get it. You know, with the wildfires and the climate change, there is a sense of urgency. I feel the sense of urgency. But at the same time, we also have to acknowledge that if we don't collaborate together uh, on the consumption side, on the supply side, and all the stakeholders are in a periphery of energy, which is pretty much everybody in society, that we're not going to get to these targets unless we are proverbially all paddling in the same direction. But the difference between what Big Oil says at the World Petroleum Congress? I think uh, somewhat of a, uh, again, wishful thinking that we're going to flip a switch and we'll go from where we're at today to where we'll be tomorrow. And I think the reality is uh, we've got we've to transition from where we're at today. And what you hear during Climate Week? Forget about paddling. We're not even in the same canoe. Hello, I'm Jess Milton. For 15 years, I produced The Vinyl Cafe with the late, great Stuart McLean. Every week, more than 2 million people tuned in to hear funny, fictional, feel-good stories about Dave and his family. We're excited to welcome you back to the warm and welcoming world of The Vinyl Cafe with our new podcast, Backstage at The Vinyl Cafe. Each week, we'll share two hilarious stories by Stuart, and for the first time ever, I'll tell you what it was like behind the scenes. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. On your radio and by podcast, this is The Cost of Living. I'm Paul Haberschrude. Canadians buy 80% of our groceries from just five big chains. 
Loblaw, Empire, Metro, Walmart, and Costco. It's why Ottawa just summoned top executives from those companies to try to make food more affordable. But what if you could shop somewhere else and pay less? How could that be? Our producer, Daniel Nerman, finds out. So starting here, I got two bags of shredded cheese for $6. Brandy Dustin just got back from a big grocery shop. We've got some eye of round steaks, and I don't know if you can see, they are thick. Brandy lives in southern BC in a community called Rooseville. Um, I honestly don't know the exact population, but there's not very many. It's Rooseville is right next to the U.S. border. So twice a week, Brandy crosses the border to buy groceries in Montana. She figures she saves about $200 a month. Staples like milk, cheese, and butter are much cheaper. And the biggest savings? Meat. We had tons of smoked ribs this summer, which I haven't had in ages. The beef roast, I haven't had beef roast in years because, quite honestly, I can't afford it. And I picked up yesterday a 3.77-pound pork roast for $3.73 American. And yes, Canadians are allowed to cross the border with a pork roast. In fact, you can bring back 20 kilos of chicken wings if you really want. Even 20 kilos of bananas. You just gotta declare it. Ambarish Chandra teaches economics at the University of Toronto and researches cross-border trade. He says there are lots of reasons why some foods are cheaper south of the border. For one, the U.S. grocery industry is really big. Market size is massive. It it explains so much of why prices are so different. The U.S. just operates at a much bigger scale. And so grocers, they can provide their range of goods at much lower prices in the U.S. market than they can in Canada. American grocery chains have buying power. They order so much that they can negotiate lower prices with suppliers and manufacturers. Chandra says compared to Canada, there's more competition in the U.S. grocery biz. And the country's biggest player is known for its everyday low prices. Walmart's super inflation buster sale blasts through the inflation barrier with big discount savings on... Because Walmart is so dominant in the U.S. and there they can drive prices down really low because of their scale, that of course forces all of their competitors to try to match them. And we just don't have that kind of competition here. Then there's labor. Wages are lower in the U.S. than Canada. Chandra says that brings down costs in all areas of the supply chain, from farm workers to meat packers to truck drivers and cashiers. For many of us, it's probably not worth the cost of gas just for a block of cheap American cheddar. But it is for Brandy Dustin. That grocery store in Montana is just a 15-minute drive from her house. So crossing the border makes sense, even with the exchange rate. The dollar is awful. (laughs) But I am still saving. Like, I check and see kind of what the sales are in Canada, and 
every time I look, I'm like, oh, I know I can save more in the U.S. And right now, every dollar counts. Brandy is waiting on surgery and can't work. So finding deals is her job. My husband and I like to joke, I'm the house manager, if you will. In the future, I am hoping that our prices can come down a bit and I can support our our Canadian economy a bit more. It's just made it a little hard to do. So I'm doing what I have to do to support my family. For The Cost of Living, I'm Danielle Nerman. On your Radio and by podcast, this is The Cost of Living. I'm Paul Haverschrude. Remember Pong, the first video game from Atari? You hit a little ball back and forth. Mind-blowing. Then Pac-Man came along and... Forget about it. Video games have come a long way from that. Now, they outsell the music industry and Hollywood by a lot. Games like Red Dead Redemption, Assassin's Creed, Overwatch are huge sellers. So are sports games like NBA 2K, which just dropped its latest version. And I'm taking Kobe. The money that's now pouring in from games like NBA 2K is good for the industry. But CBC producer Philip Drost says not every gamer is happy about how they're making that money. Hi, Philip. Hey, Paul. Yeah, the NBA 2K community isn't really pumped right now. Okay, well, before we talk about them not being pumped, can you tell us a bit about the game? Yeah, I've played it for years. I like video games. I like basketball. So it's an easy fit. NBA 2K is a virtual basketball game. The graphics are super lifelike, and there are a few different ways you can play. You can either put together a team using current players, or you can create your own custom player and use that player to play hoops with your friends online. The game comes out with a new edition every year, and it costs about 90 bucks. But this season, it could cost you a lot more. And you're saying NBA 2K fans are not happy. What's going on? This year, the makers of the game introduced a new way for players to spend money, something called a season pass. So the way it works is you pay your 13 bucks for a subscription every six weeks, and you get some special rewards like a funny hat or some skill boosts. That's on top of all the other microtransactions in the game. It's created something of an online backlash from players like Rafael Figueroa. I find it so ridiculous Honestly, it is so hilarious how much they push microtransactions on the game. And it makes absolutely no sense to me. Microtransactions? Yeah, this is when you're asked to pay for extra stuff that helps you play a game, in this case, NBA 2K. You want your player to be a better dunker? You want them to be a little bit faster? You can exchange your real-life dollars for in-game currency. Okay, well, how many real-life dollars are we talking here? Well, really, as much as your bank account allows, some people, they spend a few extra bucks on the game and that's it. But others spend a lot of money. I have a friend who spent about $2,000 on the game in one year. Now he's married and he makes some better financial decisions. But you can spend even more than that. 
There's a YouTube streamer from Nova Scotia named Troy Dan. He plays a lot of games, including NBA 2K, and he drops a lot of money on microtransactions. You can just buy your way to victory now. No, seriously, I bought it. You can actually buy a battle pass now in 2K. Over the last seven years, he has spent $200,000. $200,000 on NBA 2K. His player must be, well, better be good. Like LeBron crossed with Thanos, just out there, just mashing on dudes. Yeah, and I've been on the receiving end of that a few times. Not super fun. That's the thing about the pay-to-play system in games like NBA 2K. It makes the playing field so uneven that you either pay or you're like Christine Taylor. You don't pay, and you end up getting your butt kicked. It, it, it feels like, oh, well, geez, I better buy this because nobody's having fun getting stomped or beaten every game because they suck. I can't play defense. I'm not fast enough. My balls are all getting stolen anytime I try and dribble. I can't dunk. I can't shoot. So all kinds of motivation there to pay to upgrade. Especially if you're playing online with your friends and your player is the one that's letting everybody down. You're in the heat of the game and your credit card is already in the system. Just a few clicks away from being able to finally hit that wide open three-pointer. Tom Vinica works in the video game industry in Edmonton. He says the system works. When you want something the most, you pay for it then. You know, where, you, where you're, you know, uh, kind of at their mercy, so to speak, and, and want to, you know, kind of are more willing then to pay than you otherwise would be. This gives off a bit of a, a gambling vibe. Like there's kind of an addictive quality to what's happening here. You're playing a game, you've been doing it for hours, you want to win. And like in that moment, Philip, you're just extra susceptible to spending money. Exactly. The more you play, the more likely you are to pay. Brendan Sinclair is the managing editor at gaming news website GameIndustry.biz. He says the video game industry is very aware of this and they find ways to keep players in the game as long as possible. They figure if they can just keep people playing there, eventually uh, they will they will start paying money and they'll get sucked into this um, sort of treadmill uh, of gameplay loops that, that keep them spending money to keep playing, to keep spending more money. Okay, well, if we look in the big picture then at the industry, how much spending are we talking about here? Uh, a lot. NBA 2K is published by the company Take-Two Interactive Software. It also does games like Grand Theft Auto. Last year, 64% of the company's revenue came from microtransactions. That's about $2 billion US. Now get this, the biggest Hollywood blockbuster last year was Top Gun Maverick. It made roughly one and a half billion. Yeah, I do follow the video game industry on the corporate side of things. And I know right now gaming companies are hot. Like Microsoft just bought Activision Blizzard for $68 billion. They must be looking at microtransactions and figure they are going to cash in. Yeah, Brandon says there's kind of an arms race going on in the video game industry right now. Just getting that one-time purchase isn't enough anymore. These companies know they can squeeze more profit out of players by selling them this virtual currency. Now, a few players grumbling about it online aren't going to change that. As much as people might complain about some of the the tactics used um and and they they might make a lot of noise about it the companies are more inclined to listen to the 
skyrocketing revenues that they have been making over the past decade plus uh, and and believe that that represents the voice of the consumer more than whatever backlash they get. So video game companies are making money. They're going to keep making this money. But Philip, you know, when I step back and think about it, this just isn't a video game industry thing. Like BMW, not too long ago, they introduced a subscription model in some markets. What they wanted to do was get people to pay for heated seats. They're all looking for that recurring revenue, that constant revenue stream, because for a lot of companies, that's how you really cash in. And video game companies, they really have this one figured out. Well, the question, Philip, is do they have you figured out? Because you play this game, they want your recurring revenue, Philip. They want it. Are you still going to give it to them? Paul, I, I, if I'm 100% honest with you, yeah, yeah, I'm probably going to end up getting it. But I think I'll probably wait till it goes on sale. Then maybe I'll feel a little bit better. I can have some justification about uh, dropping a few dollars to get some virtual currency so I can finally be able to dunk like I've always wanted to. Well, you know what? Spend a lot of those virtual dollars and have Pascal Siakam lead the Raptors to the the virtual title this year. That's the dream, isn't it? (laughs) Definitely. Thanks, Philip. My pleasure. On last week's show... We talked about moving home with mom and dad and asked whether attitudes are changing. It's Betty Egan calling from Dundas, Ontario. When my daughter and her marriage ended, she was working for a company where she needed to travel. So when my granddaughter was with us, I was here and I was able to take over the caring of her. I have been here for over 12 years, and I'm so glad that I have been able to do this for not only my family, but for myself. Hi, it's uh, Charlie, Patrick. Yeah, there's enough homeless people in the world. I'd take my kids back in anytime. In fact, they're living with me now. Uh, But, yeah, it doesn't bother me. The longer I can have them with me, the better. Hi there. My name's Kate. I just wanted to touch base with you guys about the cost of living. As as I have a five- and a a three-and-a-half-year-old, I'm a single mom. I think the cost of living is only going to go up in my eyes, so I will always have space for them to come back if they need to once once I'm an empty nester or if they never want to leave. I always tell them, you can live with me forever if you want. Thank you. Bye. Thanks for all the calls. If you hear something on the show and want to give us a call, our number is 1-866-550-COST. That's 1-866-550-2678. Or email costofliving at cbc.ca. That's the show for this week. The show is based in Calgary. The Cost of Living is produced by Daniel Nerman, Ellis Cho, and Jennifer Keene. Our executive producer is Tracy Johnson. I'm Paul Haverschrude. Thanks for listening. (laughs) ¶¶
For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.